the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast with me, Laura Slattery. Later on the show, I'll be discussing the Google sexism route with tech columnist Davin O'Dwyer. But first, has the Irish economy really emerged from a lost decade? What's going on at Paddy Power Betfair? And what exciting things lie in store for the former Central Bank building on Dublin's Dame Street? I'm joined by Irish Times Deputy Business Editor Dominic Coyle, our personal finance expert Fiona Redden, and Barry O'Halloran, our resident bookmaking expert, among other things, to discuss these stories. So, Fiona, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, this week, we had good body chief economist Dermot O'Leary upgrading his forecasts for the Irish economy and saying Ireland was set to wave goodbye to the lost decade that followed the property crash. Tell us a little bit more about what he said. That's right, Laura. Yeah, Yesterday, he came out and said that... Um, past 10 years that succeeded the financial crisis have finally come to an end. And he's saying this primarily because strong growth in domestic demand, consumers are spending more and also employment. Unemployment has fallen dramatically since it reached 15% back in 2012 and next year it's actually going to get back to full employment. So we're on the cusp of full employment and people have, have hit the shops effectively but ha- has everyone done that or have, have some people be sort of been left behind in, in this recovery? Well, that's the point, isn't it? You'd wonder if people listening or reading the paper yesterday, would they have nodded their heads in agreement with Mr O'Leary or would they wonder, has the recovery hit their houses yet? I mean, one point is earnings have still haven't risen. I mean, people, more people are at work, but it's not necessarily fair to say that more people are earning more. So, um, and it's a similar case in the UK and across the US as well, that earnings have stagnated. And that's obviously a draw on people's disposable incomes and how much they can spend each month. So that is a bit of a puzzle, isn't it? Because you would expect, you know, as the as employment, you know, reaches full employment, there's competition uh, for workers. Um, you know, why why hasn't there been it's, any? It's a real puzzle. Rise? And I haven't seen any, you know, really good analysis of it, of why that is the case. I mean, they say that it could be because more younger people are coming into the workforce, pushing out older, more expensive workers and that kind of, you know, drags those averages down. Or is it that people are still a bit scared, perhaps, to move jobs? And that's the best way, typically, of of, of earning more is to move your job. But people are still a bit cautious about doing that. So they've kind of sort of been scarred a little bit by what happened in in the crash. Previously, exactly. So um, um, the Good Body Report, it wasn't completely free of of warnings or, you know, it wasn't painting a completely rosy picture, was it? No, I mean, it's it's hard to talk about the economy, isn't it, without Brexit. It's such a risk there. So many unknowns. It's 2019 and it seems it's getting closer all the time. This morning, IBEC came out as well and they did their own analysis of Brexit. And they said that um, more than 200,000 people in agri-food, you know, tourism, these sectors that are going to be most hit by it, you know, their outlook is uncertain going into 2019, depending, of course, on what kind of deal can be struck. I mean, also, it's funny now, today is the 10th anniversary of when the first signs, I guess, of the financial crash came about. And that that's still a bit of a drag on the Irish economy because our national debt is so high. And coming into budget time again in October, it just reduces our flexibility that if things go bad, we already owe so much. How can we borrow much more? 
So just coming to you, Dominic, I mean, it has been an, an incredibly eventful decade, uh, Fiona mentioned there. I mean, it's 10 years ago today, as we record on August 9th, that the the, that, that the markets really started to, to react to the, the, the global uh, build-up of, of, of toxic debt. Uh, and then locally, of course, we had our own uh, over-dependence on, on, on property taxes and we had to see the unwinding of that, the bailout. And now at the other end of, of the 10-year period, we've got this Brexit-shaped cloud um, where, where do you, where do you, where we've been battered quite heavily, haven't we, really? We have, and you will be a little sceptical of, of uh, this latest Good Buddy report. I mean, what, what puzzles me most, I suppose, is that we're looking at spending being back up at uh, 2007 peaks or beyond. That, that I, I find hard to understand. The employment thing is probably a little bit easier because there's a new concept in employment now of underemployment. A gig economy is a big issue with this. So you have people who are employed, they, they, count as employed in the figures, but certainly they've capacity for greater work and they're not earning because they're part-time employees. They're not earning anything like their equivalents might have earned 10, 20 years ago. Uh, and that's that's quite a significant factor that distorts the the, the real picture. And Fiona, this, this is just storing up more problems for the future, isn't it? Because the, the so-called gig economy or any kind of casualisation of the workforce, these uh, younger generation in particular, um, they have no pensions, no savings, and um, they're kind of caught in a bind between uh, being unable to afford a mortgage and being unable to afford rent. I mean, it's hard to, to argue against that, Laura. I mean, rents continue to rise. Today, Iris Reid said again next year, they're going to see further rent rises, even and they're though they're the biggest uh, landlords, biggest landlords private in the landlords, country. Yeah. And even though we, of course, we now have rent controls, but that doesn't seem to be really slowing things down at all. So it's tough out there for young people. As, as Dominic said, with the gig economy, there seems to be more contract employment as well for longer periods of time when people eventually do get jobs. And the other thing to mention, obviously, is if, if Mr. O'Leary is right, then the, you, we are running very much the danger of going into overheating. And that's nearly as bad as where we were because if we get to full employment and the only way of actually employers attracting new new talent is to actually increase the rates and you've got rents going up and the, the cost mm-hmm. of doing business, the cost of living, everything just gets more expensive and we're, we're getting ourselves into a spiral that you would have thought we would have learned from the last time around. Okay, so it's an, an expect the unexpected uh, situation, I think, with the uh, the economy, the Irish economy perhaps in particular. Barry O'Halloran, just coming to you now. I mean, there's a company that likes to make its business on perhaps uh, people who are valiantly uh, hope for unexpected results in uh, various sporting fixtures. I think and you're talking about calculated risks. <laughs> calculated risks. Sorry. Yes. Um, Paddy Power, Betfair. I mean, uh, I mean, it's a uh, share slumped on Monday, which uh, just before it announced the, uh, the its earnings, but it, it was in reaction to the departure of of, of the group. Chief Executive uh, Brayon Corcoran. I mean, it's sort of the ultimate compliment, really, when the shares slump when you leave a company. But t- tell us why that happened. Yeah, I, I never, I, I didn't actually quite think of it that way. But you're right; it is a hell of a compliment if you're the chief executive and the the, the, the shares go south. Uh, fundamentally, Brayon Corcoran, who's been uh, part and parcel of Paddy Power and Betfair and Paddy Power Betfair for 16 years, has decided that it's time to move to another industry, and this is what he said to to us yesterday. Um, he's not sure what or where, but he wants to move on. He'd been in conversation with the board and specifically the chairman, Gary McGann, for some time in relation to this. They came up with a successor, Peter Jackson, uh, who's an independent board member and chief executive of WorldPay UK. Um, 
And having done that, Brayon then decided it was time to announce his departure. Now, I think they may have been slightly wrong-footed by the fact that the story leaked in some quarters over the weekend, uh, and that may have forced them to announce his departure on Monday. I suspect that they may well have been intending to do it alongside the results on Tuesday, but that's just speculation on my part. The, the significance of this for the group is that Brayon is seen as a, as a pioneer in his industry, and it's specifically in online or digital uh, betting. He he be- drove the development of Paddy Power Online from 2001. He then took over Betfair when it was ailing slightly and turned its fortunes around. And he then masterminded or engineered the merger of the two companies to create what's on one point a, a kind of powerhouse in the terms of betting revenues, but also a company that's seen as very much been a, te- a, a leader in the, the technology sphere as well. So his fingerprints are all over this group and there is a fear that um, it, it won't do as well when he's gone, quite simply. That this won't have the same momentum that it's had for the last few years. Uh, possibly. I mean, company, you know, companies should be, all companies should be bigger than one man or one person, irrespective of, of how talented or, or bright they are. Um, and it's a bad bet for an investor if, if a company, if a company's fortunes are, are hooked on one person, I, personally, I don't think that Brian Corcoran believes that Paddy Power needs him to succeed. In fact, he's saying I'm very confident about the prospects uh, for the future. But there's no question that um, it's in a business, it's in a sector that's facing changes and that's facing you know quite a number of regulatory challenges on on quite a lot of fronts. Most of them in key markets for Paddy Power Betfair. So there are some headwinds facing the company, and you would—they're um, going to have to deal with them under under a new CEO. Who they, they haven't announced, they, you know, they haven't announced a new CEO, have they? Oh, or yes, so they, they have. have. It's, it's Peter Jackson. I thought I'd said that. It's Peter, oh, sorry. A guy called Peter Jackson. He's uh, chief executive of WorldPay UK, and he's an independent. He's a, he's a non-executive on the Paddy Power Betfair board, so he would be familiar with the company. There's no question about that. And he's also young, and they like young people at the helm of that company. They had, as you said, an earnings update this week, um, and the sort of headline from it, apart from you know one day after the departure, uh, was that it was it was a sort of a, a bad Cheltenham from a punter's point of view. Did actually result in some higher profits for the company, but there was maybe some other year-on-year comparisons that weren't necessarily favourable. Yeah, they, they had a good Cheltenham, and that, that's that's key for a key, for a big chunk of their business, uh, the, the the bookie shops and Paddy Power Online, which is the, the European online betting business. Um, however, they they didn't have a major football tournament in the second quarter. Uh, Euro twenty sixteen started in our, you know, the, most of it was in June, June of yeah. last year. Yeah. Now it ran into July. But, you know, a lot of the action is in the run-up to the tournament and during the, the, the initial group games. So that would have had an impact on last year's results. There was no comparable fixture this year, so they didn't have that. Allied to that, um, the, some of the other sporting results went in the punter's favour for once. So that would have hit their margins. Didn't mean they lost money. It just meant that they, they, they won less money back from their, their, their customers during that three-month period. So they're saying that softened um, that 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 softened their results for the the the, the final three months of the of the half, and it's, it's worth noting. I, I think uh, Davies pointed out that their their earnings had slightly undershot uh, target as well during that period. So the, there there does seem to have been a slight softening of results. But that's not unusual in bookmaking. It's you know the pendulum swings one way and it swings another. Then you know. 
Hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, from the punter's perspective. Uh, Dominic, uh, Paddy Power, Beffer, it's sort of one of our leading corporates. Is the company bigger than one man, do you think? The company's certainly bigger than one man, but uh, the, the problem, whether it's Paddy Power, Beffer or anywhere else, investors do not like uncertainty. It didn't help, obviously, that the, the news leaked over the weekend. But even on Monday, they and indeed Tuesday, they're still unable to say when Mr. Corcoran is leaving and when Mr. Jackson's taking over. That's not good, especially for a company in a sector that is facing challenges with increased regulatory oversight in Australia and elsewhere, with trying to look at, at how they recover ground in the casino online gaming market where they appear to have lost some, some uh, um, users, with net margins getting tighter all the time. Not unusual for a mature company to, to find itself you know, struggling with, with new challenges, but it does create uncertainty and... Mr. Corcoran was very much seen as a man who was key to the whole Paddy Power-Betfair merger. Part of the reason Paddy Power went after Betfair was they wanted to get Mr. Corcoran back. He has always wanted to lead the company. Even before he left for Betfair, he's then had the experience of leading Betfair. Now he's come back, and 18 months later, he suddenly decided, ah, shucks, 16 years, I've had enough. Investors probably think that they haven't had the whole story yet. I think they're probably right. Okay, so it's a watch-this-space situation. Um now, in Dublin city centre, uh, we were with so much change, I can't keep up with it. Um, but um, there is a 75 million uh, makeover, shall we say, although I think the building looks great, uh, of the old central bank headquarters on, on Dame Street. And Barry, you've been writing this week about the, the, the planning permission that's been uh, going to be sought by the owners of that building now, which is the, the US property giant Heinz. And it's Hong Kong partner, uh, Peterson. So what's going to happen in that building? Okay, well, the building is still going to continue to look great, apparently, because, the, I mean, what's they, they are giving, the, they're cleaning up the, the cladding and the, the steel structuring. Uh, nothing fundamentally will alter about the building. Um, one new feature will be a 300-seat restaurant on the top of it, which is going to have sort of 360-degree views of the, the, the city centre. Um they're saying those views will be unrivaled. I mean, because it's actually in the city centre, and you can you, you can yeah. see all around. Well, I mean, I I don't know if I consider myself lucky or unlucky to have been on the top floor of the central bank building, uh, and they I think those view I think it's, it's actually fair to say yeah. it is unrivaled because you see the, both sides of the city. It's in a really central location. The river is there. Um, I'm just a little bit worried. I mean, I know, I know, as, as Fiona was saying, consumer spending is on its way back. But I, I would hope that the restaurant is, is something kind of easy and affordable, rather than <laughs> rather than maybe a big Celtic tiger. What do you think? Well, I, I suspect that they may be leaning in your direction because the, the indications are that it's likely to be run by someone who, who's already, you know, running this kind of an operation and will probably have some idea of of things like how you scale it, how things should be priced. I mean, if you have 300 seats, you want 300 people sitting on them or, you know, you want, you want most of them in and full. Out. So yeah. you're, you're, not, you're not going to do that if, if you price yourself out of the market. I suspect that it won't be Celtic Tigery. It's probably not going to be, you know, like it's, it's obviously not going to be like burgers and chips, but it's, it, yeah. it's, it's, going to, it's presumably going to be a decent restaurant that lots of people can afford. Otherwise, mm. you're not going to fill it. With perhaps a bit of a premium because it's tourist custom, I guess you would expect. Yeah, yeah uh, I mean, you'd expect some level of premium in, you'd expect some level of premium down around there anyway. Um, I, I'd be very surprised if it were out of kilter with that, put it that way. So other than that, there's, there's what else is going in the building? Okay, well, there'll be 12,000 metres of office space, which we all know is is very much in demand in Dublin at the moment. 
um, and they're they're looking at getting that finished, you know, in and around the end of next year. So, like, you should actually be seeing the 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 sort of the march of of the 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 sort of post Brexit uh, moves at that point. At the, the the likes of the financial services companies and the rest of it that are moving over here, they would presumably have to be making you know clear decisions on where they're going, what buildings they're taking, all the rest of it. Uh, so it should hopefully be ready in time for that. Along with that, then there'll be uh, cafes in the, the basement area and they're also going to extend the, the plaza or the square, as I'd call it, in front of it um, and plant some trees on the, the border with Dame Street and make the place look a good deal more attractive than it is. Because this is kind of going to be a pedestrianised kind of area around that there anyway. Yeah, it, it'll, tie into, it'll tie into the pe- pedestrianisation of College Green. Um, and I think it does actually look like a good idea because it gives you, it gives a focus to that area, which, you know, before pedestrianisation, and I know people are giving out about utility boxes and, and uh, Lewis lines and whatnot. I, I don't understand why, quite frankly, because I think what's going to happen there uh, is going to massively improve that area, you know, before all this work and, be, you know, before the, the tram line building started there it was just constantly snarled in traffic now people will be able to walk around there it's uh it is a key, a key development it's the landmark central city development with a big commercial end part of it in the older central bank buildings that the front onto college green there it's a real attempt with the pedestrianization and that to try to link the grafton street shopping center with the river and down into the, the henry street area so it's it's a really important project and getting the central bank element of it right is critically important um, and certainly the, the restaurant has the potential to be spectacular. Uh, what price point they aim at remains to be seen. But, uh, but it, it does have potential in, in a whole new pedestrianised College Green to be impressive. But uh, they have to get it right and get the right tenants in. I mean, uh, the only thing that worries me is a seamless, uh, frictionless city centre reminds me a little bit of uh, seamless, uh, frictionless uh, Brexit borders, which are maybe not going to be quite so seamless or frictionless. Um, we will leave it there. And on that uh, hopefully promising note, Thank you, everybody. Coming up after the break, gender discrimination, free speech, sexist twaddle, or a bit of all three. We'll be discussing this week's row at Google. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life, June 2015. Now, a computer engineer has been fired by Google for suggesting women are less biologically suited to certain roles in tech and leadership. He's now considering taking legal action. Whilst in a separate development, 60 women are suing the tech giant for unfair payment practices. With me to discuss the sexism row at Google is our tech columnist, Davin O'Dwyer. Davin, there's been a bit of a backlash to his ousting, um, but people have been fired for a lot less, haven't they? Yeah. Um, Sundar Pichai, the chief executive at Google, um, pointed out that the uh, the memo, um, uh, which uh, was entitled Google's Ideological Echo Chamber, um, contravened its code of conduct in that it made colleagues feel um, uh, disrespected uh, and unsafe, uh, or perhaps not unsafe, but um, uh, and, and thus the, 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 the firing was, was, was warranted. Um, the backlash is very much from uh, the kind of the bright Bart alt-right brigade uh, for whom uh, all free speech 
uh, must be kind of free of consequences, um, uh, especially offensive free speech. Um, uh, and I guess what's uh, what's interesting about this is the, uh, about the the, the memo was written by James Damore. Uh, was the kind of uh, the cliches and uh, stereotypes uh, that he trots out um, about the uh, ability of, of women to be software engineers. Um, and he claims that there are kind of biological reasons for why men are superior uh, to women. Uh, Google, of their kind of technical workforce, uh, only about 20% are women. Um, so uh, Demore's uh, thesis would suggest that uh, that, uh, significant four to one uh, outnumbering is down to biological reasons. Doesn't that you know when you put it that way, it doesn't actually stand up to much scrutiny. Um, so it caused a kind of a backlash within Google quickly went viral across the internet. Uh, and now, having been fired, he's a kind of a, a, a martyr for the uh, for the anti PC brigade. So I mean, the the, the memo itself or the manifesto. Um, it kind of also suggested that women are more prone to neuroticism and anxiety and actually just can't handle the stress of, of leadership positions. I mean, it's very hard if you're uh, a female employee of Google to, 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 to walk into work uh, knowing that a male colleague uh, openly and explicitly believes this. Indeed. I mean, I think some of the more uh, compelling arguments for why he had to be fired and he actually, why Damore hadn't given his uh, managers much choice, really, was uh, eloquently put by a former um, Google uh, manager who said, basically, you couldn't put this guy on a team. Um, you couldn't expect anybody else to work with him. Um, and he's, uh, while trying to, pretending to expose um, concern for diversity uh, and to try and the kind of efficacy of the diversity programs in place. Uh, he was actually doing kind of profound damage um, in terms of you know actually actually uh, cultivating a, 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 a diverse workplace. Um, you couldn't, and, and further to that, the the sort of large scale cooperation required in something like Google across uh, kind of across software teams would mean that he'd be kind of highly, highly problematic to have in a team. Um, so he's he's uh, kind of indignant uh, now, uh, news say, and uh, threatening all sorts of lawsuits. Uh, Kevin Drum, the uh, commentator at Mother Jones, uh, went so far as to speculate that the piece was so over the top and the logic was you know, so full of fallacies, basically, that uh, he was actually possibly trying to uh, intentionally get fired um, so as to become a kind of a cause celebre of the, uh, of, of the, of the far right or the alt right um, uh, and have, you know, have them take up his case. Um, but that was kind of interesting speculation, but uh, it goes to show just how weak the logic was that, that kind of actually anybody could put that forward in itself. So there seems to be quite a lot of uh, cause celebrities for the far right, uh, particularly perhaps within the, the tech industry. It's 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 not an industry known uh, for its its love of women. Uh, no, there's been uh, an awful lot of very interesting uh, uh, research done, and just on the on the, on the uh, how pervasive the cultural stereotypes are, which of course. Uh, which 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 limit uh, women's involvement in in STEM uh, at large, but also specifically the tech industry. So and of course, STEM is, of STEM course is the uh, science, science technology. technology, engineering, and maths. That's right. Yeah, and um, the E always gets me. Uh, uh, and it's the uh, that of course starts from a 
very early age. So you have children from a very early stage, girls being kind of convinced that, that they're not actually as good at maths as they are, despite their, their results not bearing that out at all. Uh, and boys being kind of convinced that this, these are the sort of uh, industries that they should go into. Uh, so then by the time you you you, uh, uh, you get to the Silicon Valley scale, um, you have far fewer people going through uh, STEM courses in the US um, and globally. And, uh, and, and so a much smaller pool of women for, for these industries to choose from. Uh, um, and then that, that has an awful lot of very practical concerns in that the software that we use every day, so much of it has been dictated by Silicon Valley. And when it's an overwhelmingly male uh, culture for a start, um, uh, and then with a kind of a strong uh, streak of machismo through it, um, or kind of geek bro uh, uh, ideology through it, that affects the sort of tools that we get. Uh, there was an interesting example, I think, was the Google Plus, uh, when that debuted in 2011, as a kind of a the Facebook rival, uh, and immediately, well, it looked lovely. I'm sure it was it was the the uh, underlying code was perfect. Um, uh, people immediately started running into kind of practical problems in that it kind of imported your Gmail uh, contacts and so revealed an awful lot of the people who you were actually corresponding with uh, publicly. And it was the sort of just blind spot that probably wouldn't have happened had there been, say, women on that team uh, making uh, you know with with senior input into how the thing was to work. Uh, and you see examples of that all the time. Be Twitter and and and, uh, and these things aren't just kind of limited to, uh, to to privacy issues, of course. But those are some of the most kind of stark examples. When you multiply that across all the different technology industries, you can only kind of imagine what sort of technology we'd have if they were actually uh, as diverse as the human population is. So. I, you know, I can't help feeling this story is just really kind of profoundly dispiriting, really, because a sense that there is, you know, even if Google um, takes uh, strong action, which it did, um, that there's a sort of a lingering damage from it, that there are very probably uh, young girls who are thinking that now that the tech industry is not for me or there's this, there's some, there's this hurdle I have to cross, which is the, which is the sexism hurdle, not my own ability hurdle, yes, before yeah. I can uh, um, be successful within this industry and yeah, make, it, make a difference. I think certainly I think Damore has, uh, has kind of unwittingly kind of revealed that, that uh, the pervasiveness of, 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 of that sort of, those sort of sexist ideas um, and, uh, and, and, and couched in a sort of... Um, uh, not terribly convincing sort of concern. Uh, the the memo itself is is a pretty turgid read. He's, uh, he's certainly not a not a good writer. Never mind thinker. Uh, but the that you know that the, the the importance for this issue, and of course, it isn't just limited to this memo. I mean, it comes at a time, and in so many ways, it's so emblematic of the uh, Google being investigated over unfair pay practices. Uh, the the constant sexual harassment lawsuits that took down uh, Travis Kalanick as uh, chief executive at Uber, uh, numerous kind of venture capitalist uh, managers getting accused of, uh, of, of harassment. Um, it very much seems to be part of the culture. Uh, and yet, because every industry now effectively is a kind of dependent on or becoming an offshoot of the technology industry, this is very much kind of a ground zero for, uh, for the kind of wider struggle for uh, gender equality in, in, in the workplace. So it's it's very crucial that the industry at large, you know, at large, kind of says that this sort of behaviour is okay. We're we're going to correct for it. Uh, we're going to encourage greater participation and fight for it. Um, uh, 
it, it's really crucial that this battle happens. But as you say, for a lot of women who might be interested in this in this career, it, they might think, well, is it really worth it if, uh, if this is the sort of behavior I have to put up with? So it's almost like it's the same, the battles that we thought had we'd won, uh, we thought uh, were finished, uh, we're having to fight them uh, time and time again. Um, I just, uh, I was pretty impressed by the bluntness uh, of Kara Swisher, who's of course a well-known uh, technology uh, journalist who uh, who <laughs> just straightforwardly calls it uh, uh, the memo uh, sexist twaddle. I mean, it would be nice, wouldn't it, if we could just ignore it as such um, and move on. But it just seemed that that these kind of incidents are now kind of permeating Mm. uh, the news uh, from not just in tech, but across the media and and, and other and and other sectors. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a really uh, key point to uh, to understand about the the sense that this is a battle that is happening again, uh, you know, despite, uh, you know, at large kind of thinking that this these points have already been made and I think that's one of the the um, core uh, characteristics actually of the memo is uh, the kind of solipsism of it Demore doesn't seem to realise that these points have already been discredited um, so he's kind of bemoaning a, um, a close mindedness at Google without considering well actually that's just uh, these are these are points that have already been debunked these are arguments that have already been had um, and, and that's why they're not they're not welcome that's why they're you know they're, they've already been deemed offensive uh, not to protect people's feelings but because they're just garbage arguments um, junk science effectively yeah, I mean, it's just kind of, he's talking about kind of, uh, kind of postnatal testosterone levels and stuff. It's totally, totally debunked stuff. Um, uh, uh, but that sort of, the, in some ways, the kind of very self-confidence with which he puts this stuff forward is emblematic of the problem uh, in itself that uh, boys are conditioned to be kind of more self-confident in their opinions and uh, girls less so. And so you end up with uh, somebody very self-confidently putting forward this nonsense and actually putting it out there, you know, and, and uh, you know, finding, uh, unfortunately, a receptive enough audience in certain, in certain quarters. So what does Google do next? Because it's sort of been criticised uh, by both sides effectively and it may have a number of different uh, separate legal uh, cases coming. What, what do you, what's, the, what's the reputational uh, path forward for Google? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think uh, Pichai is in uh, a good position. He's, he's cancelled his family holidays, that's a start, um, to, uh, to handle this. Um, uh, no doubt they're... They, Part part of the problem, the conundrum they're facing is the with the with the uh, U.S. Labor Department uh, investigation. Basically, is they uh, they're uh, so far not handing over all the kind of information about people's pay uh, due to privacy issues, uh, or so they say. Um, but of course, that sort of uh, opacity about about people's pay is exactly the sort is is, is exactly what uh, allows you know pay inequality to to to, 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 to fester. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, so kind of a uh, if if they were to kind of say we're, we're going to be totally transparent about how much people people get and actually kind of pioneer that, um, they would obviously be doing I think a lot of good. You've got an awful lot in, just in the US kind of uh, cultural resistance to that sort of transparency about pay. Um, but I, I think without that, you're you're this is going to be a systemic problem in terms of the pay side of things. Uh, in terms of the wider cultural issues, um, you know I, th- I think there has been considerable progress in the other areas, the other STEM areas. Uh, seen over the past 15 to 20 years much uh, you know increasing participation women in in those areas um 
So it's certainly not an impossible feat, uh, but those areas don't tend to have a kind of a behemoth uh, or kind of a, a homogenous culture as Silicon Valley tends to have. Uh, so I think it, Google now it's a, it's a tricky position, but they are they are poised to uh, you know to actually make a big difference if they if they if they want to. So you write in a in a very fine column which appears in in, in Thursday's edition of the Irish Times and online as well um, that the uh, James Demore's uh, note was also kind of suffused with the kind of thinly veiled anger of, of, of a scorned conservative. Tell, tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that, because there were a number of references to the conservative position and the, and the, and the left-wing position. Yes, yeah, he comes out with a kind of a, um, a rather, uh, pretty trite actually, um, uh, left biases and right biases, um, uh, which he says the left have compassion for the weak while the right have respect for the strong and authority and, uh, and the left believe uh, uh, that humans are inherently cooperative uh, while the right believes that humans are inherently competitive. Um, now, he, he is gracious enough to admit that neither side is 100% correct, uh, which is very good of him. But um, <laughs> uh, this, this sort of... Um, uh, yeah, this kind of Manichaean thinking that he seems to suppose is... He strikes me as the sort of guy who probably read a lot of Ayn Rand when he was a teenager and was extremely impressed with it, um, but hasn't, I think, been... I mean, no, this is just, just from his memo. I haven't had a chat with the guy. Um, but he doesn't actually seem to know any women. You know, he certainly doesn't f- seem like he's a person who's actually worked with women uh, to any great degree. He certainly hasn't developed much respect for women, um, uh, despite his protestations to the country. And... Uh, this this um that that sort of um uh, well us versus them thinking is is actually kind of an awful lot of the kind of the animating uh, spirit of the, of the all right, you see, the sort of sexism is is one of the you know if you trace back the lineage of the alt right, it kind of goes back to the sort of pickup artistry sort of stuff, uh, which is entirely based on uh, misogyny um, and uh, and a kind of a disregard for women as as you know as people basically. So it's, uh, I mean, the alt right is, is essentially prejudices and uh, hatreds as 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 you know as old as humanity yes, itself, dressed yeah. up in this sort of slightly. Uh, hipsterish gloss, almost. Yeah, they, I'd say hipsters would disagree with the. Um, yeah, they'd hate that. Sorry, I take that. I draw that. Remark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I, I think the the degree to which uh, this, you know, Tomorrow said he's got a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of praise, but uh, from people inside Google and outside who feel they can't speak up, uh, and so I think running throughout it is a sort of resentment uh, against what he calls the ideological echo chamber, which is essentially just a kind of a, 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 a euphemism. He as for political correctness, uh, without kind of regard for the for the fact that political correctness is actually just um, well, kind of a cloying phrase in itself, is actually just uh, about having consideration for other people and respect yeah, for yeah. others in the workplace. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you very much. Um, I completely respect your contribution today, Davin. Likewise, Laura. That is all we have time for this week on Inside Business. So my thanks to Dominic Coyle, Fiona Redden, and Barry O'Halloran, who you heard from earlier, and to Davin O'Dwyer. Uh, This podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan and JJ Vernon was our sound engineer. A reminder that it's available to download from iTunes and on irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. You can also get the latest business news straight to your inbox by signing up to our business today email on irishtimes.com. I'm Laura Slattery and until next time, goodbye.